Hello, and welcome back to the Women of the Wild podcast. My name is Ashley Winchester, and I am your hosty type person. You may have noticed some changes around here, as well as a massive gap in between episodes. I took quite the little break from the podcast, kind of reevaluating my goals, my intentions with the podcast, as well as um, I had received some messages through Instagram about the use of the word women with the X, the spelling of the word woman with the X, so W-O-M-X-N. And these messages were from concerned people who were worried about the X kind of being more exclusive rather than inclusive. And I kind of started doing some research and I got a bit overwhelmed with, with the idea of having to change the name of the podcast, of um, having to learn and unlearn what I thought was inclusive versus exclusive or divisive. And so what I came to find was that the spelling of the word women with the X is not necessarily inclusive. It can be used for some women or non-binary people who maybe have an affinity towards the feminine to use that that spelling as a way to identify but when it comes down to it the spelling of woman with the x or women with the x does not necessarily include trans women or non-binary people because if you identify as a woman you spell woman the normal way. Um, at least that's the, the general consensus. And so I want this podcast, I want this space to be as inclusive as possible. I never meant to exclude anybody. I never meant to be divisive. I mostly just want anybody who wants to feel inspired to be inspired. And I, I want to uplift women. I want to see more women in the outdoors. And so I changed the name of the podcast to Women of the Wild with women spelled traditionally because I do interview women and I interview people who identify as women with the knowledge and and just knowing that the space here is is inclusive. It's for everybody. If you identify as a woman, if you are a trans woman, if you are non-binary with an affinity towards the feminine, if you're a man and just want to listen and feel inspired by, by what is going on here, all are welcome. This is a, a safe space and I just want that to be known from the get-go. And also in the grand scheme of things, I I know nothing. I am constantly learning. I'm constantly unlearning, just like most of us are, should be doing. And so if anybody has any feedback or opinions or whatever, please feel free to reach out, share. Let's start a discussion. I I want to learn and I want to to do better and be better. That being said, the one of the reasons that there was such a huge break in this podcast is because I uh, ended up spending a good portion of my summer in the North Cascades completely off-grid, supporting my partner, uh, boyfriend, in a very large, fastest known time effort that he was doing on the Washington Bulgers, which are the 100 highest peaks of Washington. So I was actually essentially backpacking around uh, in Washington for a good couple of months, and then took a little bit of time for recovery. And between that and and the kind of rebranding of Women of the Wild, I, I just needed to take a little bit of time. So, But what it really comes down to is I love doing this podcast. I love talking to cool people. I love talking to about adventure. I love talking about the things that I love. And so we are going to continue this podcast with the goal of getting one episode out at the beginning of every month. So the first of every month, you should see a new episode drop. And that brings me to my next point, which I'm very excited to announce, that this podcast is now getting support from Gnarly Nutrition. 
Gnarly Nutrition is a sports supplement brand that I pretty much use on every single one of my FKTs, long runs, training runs, everything. But what's great about it is it tastes good, for one. It uses high-quality ingredients. Their ingredient list is completely transparent. There are no proprietary blends there. But also, it's not just for the ultra-marathoner super athlete who climbs 514s on the weekends. It's also for, you know, the the busy mom and the weekend rock climber and whatever it is that you are doing in your life that requires some kind of supplemental support, Gnarly's got you covered. I really love their recovery products. The vanilla vegan protein is one of my favorites and I actually mix in their performance greens. It is one of my favorite concoctions. Beyond that, Gnarly's also stoked to support and try and get more women in the outdoors, which is really what lies near and dear to my heart. Highly recommend. Check out Gnarly Nutrition. Go gnarly.com. I'll link it in the show notes as well. Check them out. So now moving on to my guest. I have Sunny Stroer on as a guest again. And I know this is the third time she's been on. There are reasons for that. Sunny is an amazing athlete, a a good friend, a like wonderful adventurer. She's just so well-spoken and experienced. And we actually had kind of a, uh, a, an adventure together, she and I, in early November. And I thought that it would be really fun to kind of chat about our experience out on this big, hairy adventure. So without further ado, there's Sunny. This is the third time you've been on the podcast, so I I almost feel like I don't need to have you introduce yourself, but why don't you go (laughs) ahead and introduce yourself and kind of tell, you know, like quickly tell everybody what you do and who you are. Sounds good. My name is Sunny Strur, and I am an ultra runner and endurance athlete. I'm also a guide service owner operator in Kanab, Utah, as well as the founder and manager of a woman's mountaineering business called All Expeditions. And All Expeditions now has a really cool feature, um, like a nonprofit. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, indeed. So All Expeditions launched the Summit Scholarship Program now three years ago, which essentially provides funding for women from all walks of life to get into the big mountain realm without having to pay for it out of pocket. And um, that program is now, as of this summer, actually its own official 501c3, um, you know, filed nonprofit. And the nonprofit, which is called the All Summit Scholarship Foundation, is currently running this virtual challenge that's a virtual Aconcagua summit climb. It's actually super fun. Ashley, you and I were both participating in it. You're currently uh, heading up the leaderboards with some massive, massive vert that you put down over the weekend. But um, yeah, it's essentially a virtual challenge where you're tallying, you know, how much climbing you're doing through any type of workout. And um, there's a $25 sign-up fee to participate. It's social, it's fun, it's educational. And the sign-up fees go towards the Summit Scholarship Program. Yeah, and anybody can sign up for it, right? Yes, anybody can sign up for it. If you search for the Awe Summit Scholarship Foundation on social media, on Facebook, on Google, you know, wherever, um, the Awe Aconcagua Virtual Summit or Virtual Climb, um, you'll go find it or obviously, you know, find Ashley or myself and uh, we have links in our respective uh, profiles and everything. Yeah, and actually it was one thing I, because I, I signed up yesterday and, and you know, inputted all my stats and there's this really cool like modules that you get to read about the different camps and how, like what the climb is like up to the camps. And um, it's really, it's really interesting. It really kind of immerses you in it and super educational. It's, it's, it's really fun. So everybody should check that out. Um, It's just a fun challenge to get involved and support this uh, new scholarship foundation um, for SETI. So thank you, Ashley. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm glad we got to uh, plug that in at the start because I was trying to figure out where I wanted to, to put that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, so one of the main reasons that I have you on the podcast uh, this time around is because uh, we went on a little adventure together. <laughs> um, little adventure. 
so Sunny and I did the Tuck Up Trail together, which is kind of a, a idea of a trail. But can you kind of tell us about this this route? I like your description, Ashley, that it's the idea of a trail. <laughs> um, I believe the National Park Service officially calls it a trail slash route because they can't quite figure out if it actually merits the term trail. Having been on it with you and having spent what, you know, almost three full days trying to cover 80 miles, I would now very firmly come down on the verdict that it is not actually a trail. It is a route, (laughs) if that. But um, yeah, for everybody who's listening, the Tuck Up is this really obscure, remote, um, long distance trail or route on the north side of the Grand Canyon. It's on the western part of the North Rim, so far, far, far off the main drag of Grand Canyon National Park. It's way off the pavement. It's like, you know, an hour and a half of dirt road driving just to get to the trailheads. And it's this really beautiful, rugged, um, difficult to follow route that navigates essentially just on the esplanade level of the Grand Canyon, which is sort of this halfway, you know, balustrade between the top of the North Rim and the river bottom. So you're in the canyon, you're in a massive, 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 huge landscape, and you're trying to go from point A to point B, having to end run tons and tons and tons of canyons um, along the way, which is what makes this route so interesting. But um, yeah, Ashley and I, decided to tackle this in uh, early November of 2021 and had a wild adventure. Yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty wild. And it, it's kind of funny that the Tech Up Trail, I feel like it, it doesn't get a lot of attention because it is so remote and so obscure. It's a absolutely stunning area. You mentioned that it took, it, it takes about an hour and a half of dirt road driving to get there. Um, we had a little bit of an adventure just getting to the start. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, the start on the eastern side of the trail or the route is what's called 150 mile trailhead. And this is a pretty obscure, you know, not very heavily used trailhead way, 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 way off in the boonies of Grand Canyon National Park, essentially. And to get there, you have to, as I said, drive about an hour and a half of dirt roads. And, you know, you don't know what the road conditions are going to be like. You definitely need high clearance four-wheel drive. And so, you know, one of the reasons that I really wanted to get in and do this um, trail is that I now live in Kanab, Utah, which is pretty close to the north of the Grand Canyon. And I co-own and manage a guide service out there that specializes in high clearance four-wheel drive access to really remote spots. So I was like, oh, sweet. You know, <laughs> we actually have the ticket to get in there because I now have both the local, you know, conditions, knowledge, and expertise, as well as the right vehicles and the right folks to um, try and get to the trailheads. And um, as a matter of fact, I was able to go and rope in a couple of awesome volunteers from Dreamland Safari Tours, which is the tour business that I run here in Kanab. And uh, those folks volunteered to get the two of us to the trailhead. Unfortunately, (laughs) we ended up running into some truck issues. We actually, so here's what happened. We had the truck checked out, you know, after it started acting up, we somehow bent a cross member on, uh, you know, on that wash crossing that we tried. There was this really washed out section in the road that just had the truck super kind of diagonally campered. And um, yeah, we bent a cross member and the truck did not like it. So Ashley and I ended up um, walking six miles to the trailhead from the spot where the truck didn't want to go any further. I, you know, it's funny. I always meant to follow up with you on that and see what the the diagnosis was. And uh, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. That was a, a pretty gnarly little section of, of road there. But you just reminded me. So this, the tuck up trail was your idea. I like to say it was your fault. This whole thing it was absolutely 100% <laughs> your fault. <laughs> I remember how the conversation went. I remember that you and I were looking at doing something together and we're like, oh, you know, Grand Canyon would be cool. And that's a good area. And um, then I think I mentioned the tuck up trail. You were like, oh yeah, I've looked at that. I've been thinking about doing that. I was like, oh, great. Let's go ahead and do it. <laughs> so it might've been my instigation, but you were pretty pretty psyched on it, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's probably true. I do tend to get excited about long, hard routes. 
But where did this idea for this trail come from? Did you, were you just kind of like perusing the map of, of the Grand Canyon and saw it on there? You know, that's a great question, to be honest. I barely even know. Um, I want to say what probably happened is that I saw the Tuck Up Trail because, again, Dream on Safari Tours, you know, the business that I run down here, we guide tours to Torweep, which is the western terminus off the trail. And because of that, I'd driven past the Tuck Up Trailhead a bunch of times. And I'm sure, you know, one of those times I looked up what it was and I was like, oh, you know, 60 to 100 miles on the Esplanade level, more or less flat, like pretty obscure, pretty far out there, really remote, really beautiful. I was like, that sounds really interesting. I'd like to go and do that. Yeah, it's kind of funny you mentioned the mileage because we had no idea what the actual mileage was going to be because the estimates on the National Park website said 60 miles but it could they mentioned that it could it could change or range depending on your route finding um and then some other sources said 100 miles so we really had no idea what we were getting into as far as distance goes which in a way was a godsend right because that meant that we way over prepared for what we thought would probably be about 80 miles but we knew it could be a lot more and so both you and I carried really heavy in terms of food and had a lot of water capacity as well and Turns out that the actual mileage that we did, according to our GPSs, uh, was about 80 or 81 miles. However, we did need all of the food and all the water that we had packed for up to potentially 100 miles. <laughs> Let's talk about the water situation a little bit. <laughs> well, actually, I should ask you to talk about the water situation because this was a, a new experience for you, right? What happened out there? It was a totally new experience. Um we so for some reason when we were looking at the maps i i had this idea that we would be kind of collecting and drinking from springs for most of you know along the way because they're on the maps there's multiple springs that are listed along the route and i made an assumption that they would be accessible and drinkable and as it turns out many of the springs are uh maybe little seeps or difficult to collect from and very mineralized. So they're known to actually cause some GI distress. And um, what we ended up doing, and we got really lucky with this, actually, there was a, a rain, um, what, a week prior, eight days prior to our starting. And we didn't actually plan it that way um, because you had to get the permits ahead of time. So it just kind of happened to be that there was a, a rain about a week in advance and rain water collected in these potholes that form on, on the uh, slick rock out there. And so that's what we ended up collecting most of our water from. And it was, I remember the first, the first one that we found was just this kind of like really shallow little puddle and you were so excited. And I was kind of like, okay, <laughs> like that's great, great sign. Like, you know, there's water out there probably, but then we came across our, our first big pothole and there was quite a bit of water in it. And you were just, I mean, just beyond excited. Like this is great water. I remember you being like, wow, look at this water. It's so beautiful. And I looked at it and I'm like, it's murky. There's bugs floating in it. There's rotting like vegetation. <laughs> and I was kind of like, oh, okay, we're drinking this. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, that, that kind of realization, like, wow, okay, this is, this is the desert water is scarce and you have to take kind of what you can get. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a, a an experience for sure. And I mean, that first big pothole that you found, it was huge. It was amazing. And yeah, it was, you know, not crystal clear, but it was pretty clear. And it was huge. It had so much water. I mean, that must have held probably what, I don't know, 40, 50 gallons of water or more. It was big. So yeah, I was really excited to find that pothole. And then it's actually funny because in, you know, the, the video clips that we took, I remember there is this one uh, clip that I have of you as we came across another pothole later on the trail. That was this tiny little pothole that held like, I don't know, maybe three or four liters, which for us was still a lot and really meaningful. And you know, you're like, oh yeah, there's water, there's water. And, you know, people who watch that 
little video clip now who aren't familiar with the terrain, they look at that and they think that you're being facetious, but it's like, no, like this is really good water. And it was really important for us to find it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember singing about water at one point. I was like, yeah, sunny fan water. <laughs> I was so excited um, because it was, I mean, the, the water really was the, the limiting factor um, for us on this trail. Um, cause I remember having discussions about, you know, halfway through kind of going, okay, like we have one spot where we can bail. Do we want to continue with the knowledge that, you know, maybe water won't be super abundant on the second half of the trail? Um, which makes me, uh, want to kind of talk to you about like our decision-making processes, you went about check-ins and risk assessment in a way that I've never had in, in a partner before. You're just very calculated. And um, so I wanted to, I want to talk to you about kind of how you go about assessing risk and talking about, you know, how, how we can move forward safely um, in these adventures. Yeah. Well, you know, Ashley, to me, the, the big thing about pretty much any adventure out there is always the journey and the process. And it's about not committing to a situation that is not reversible or, you know, potentially has consequences that go beyond what I'm willing to, to accept in terms of risk. And so for me, for example, this is um, dying from dehydration, right? It's completing a trail or putting up a fastest known time is not worth um, putting yourself at risk at that level, in my opinion. And, you know, because of that, and because neither you nor I really knew what we were going to be finding, I was really keen on having good contingency plans and always having sort of a plan B in case we didn't find water or we were slower than expected or, you know, we had, you know, whatever issues. I mean, if one of us had sprained an ankle out there, you know, and wasn't mobile for some reason, that would have been really problematic. And we actually talked about this at one point where, um, you know, I think I was saying that in a way the tuck up trail feels so remote um, that in some ways it feels like the contingency plan and often in, in a lot of cases is a helicopter. You know, if you're not mobile, like how do you get out? How do you get back to a trailhead? And man, I mean, it's way, 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 way out there. So anyway, um, getting away from, you know, kind of the really drastic radical um, accident potentials and just talking about risk management in general, my thought from the very beginning was that the only way that we would do this together and do it successfully is if, we were both stoked on it and we both felt good about the decisions that we're making um, moment to moment. And, you know, that to me very much included thinking ahead a day or two and saying, okay, what if we don't find water? Will we be okay to get to the next bailout point? And if the answer is no, then we can't logically continue because it pushes the risk beyond what's acceptable. And similarly speaking, you know, if we're finding water early on, that's a great sign that gives us some confidence that we're likely going to find water later on. If we find a ton of dried out potholes, which we also did, and we don't find any water, even in the deep and shaded potholes, then we have a really good indication that there won't be any water in the second half of the trail either, right? Which then makes it unreasonable and uh, just too consequential to continue on. So I feel like we kept talking about that pretty much you know, spring to spring and pothole to pothole and bailout point to bailout point and had a really good process in terms of making sure that we both felt like we were making responsible decisions. Yeah. And I, I really appreciated that um, about you because I think for me, I do so much solo that, you know, those sorts of thoughts and things kind of fly through my mind. Like they, they, you know, the risk assessment, um, you know, everything just kind of like flits through my mind. It's real quick. I don't verbalize it usually when I'm out on a solo mission. And so it was really cool kind of being partnered with you and being able to discuss the, the risks and what, you know, how we were going to move forward if we were going to move forward. I remember at one point uh, around the halfway mark, you and I were talking about, um, well, first of all, you asked me like, how are you feeling? Which, you know, my first response is like, oh, I'm good. 
you know, like I, I'm ignoring the pain. I'm ignoring the discomfort. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. But you were like, no, how, how are you feeling? And kind of talking about how, you know, how is my body feeling? How is my mind feeling? How are we, you know, going, are we going to move forward? Are we feeling good enough to, to move forward? And I remember kind of talking about, you know, well, what, what reasons would we have to bail, to quit at that point? And we were like, well, my body hurts, my feet hurt, I'm tired, but we like, none of those reasons were, were sort of good enough for us. And, you know, we talked about the water supply and and kind of like, well, we keep finding it. This, the springs, even though they're heavily mineralized, um, are drinkable and, you know, it would get us by. And so it was, it was really interesting and a great learning experience for me, um, being out there with a, a partner who is so, um, you know, verbal to talk about, you know, the discomforts and, and how you're actually feeling. And that was, that was huge for me. That was a really big deal. Yeah. I, I do that to myself a lot. Actually, that's also one of the reasons that I've quit on a lot of things. So it's a double-edged sword, right? I feel like in a way doing the types of adventures that we do is a lot about that resilience and overcoming challenges and overcoming discomfort, right? But I tend to continuously analyze it and think about, okay, how bad is this? And how do I feel about it? And is it still worth it to me? You know, is the joy and the adventure and the experience that I'm getting out of this outweighing the actual, uh, well, both physical and mental discomfort, as well as the risks that I'm taking. And on the discomfort side, you know, I'm very much with you. And I thought that was a, a really fun shared epiphany that I'm sure you and I have both had on multiple occasions on our own as well, where it's like, well, yeah, you know, there are moments where this kind of suck, but it's like, you know, it's sucking isn't a good enough reason to quit, right? If you're tired or you're uncomfortable, like, so what, right? That's kind of what we signed up for. And that's exactly why we're out there. But there are some real reasons that would make quitting necessary, such as a lack of water, such as progress being too slow for us to safely get through on the calories and the water capacity that we had, such as, you know, us potentially missing um, our pickup crew at the far end of the trail, which is a topic that we ended up running into. So, you know, there there are always topics to me that necessitate a DNF and I've had lots of DNFs in my life. And in all honesty, um, some of the days where I've turned around have been better days than the ones where I've persevered and just kind of pushed on, even though I knew that I was going beyond the margin of safety that I'd set for myself. The other thing that I find really valuable and really interesting when it comes to decision-making about, you know, do you push on, do you push past discomfort or do you have a reason that you need to quit or bail somewhere is that I've come to a point where I have a rule for myself that I don't quit until after I have eaten and slept. And, you know, I think this is something that we started doing very early on as we realized that we were going to be taking way more time than we had initially hoped. Um, I think we went to sleep after about four hours on the trail, right? We just, or maybe six hours, I don't know, whatever it was. It wasn't very long. And um, I was like, well, it's dark. We're moving really slow. There's no way we're going to be able to do this in 24, 36 hours. So how about we just go and sleep? <laughs> and we did. We slept for like about six hours, something like that. The yeah. first night, it was pretty glorious. <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of funny you mentioned that because going into this trail, I remember, you know, we were talking about our time estimates and I was like, well, if it's like 60, maybe 80 miles, we could probably do it in under 24 hours. <laughs> and your time estimate was closer to what, four, 36 to... Yeah, to- I thought 48 should hopefully be possible. And I was like 36 if we're super fast. Um, but yeah, 48 was kind of my A goal. Yeah, yeah. 24 was my A goal. And um it ended up being much more challenging than we anticipated. And you mentioned that, you know, the first night we decided to, to sleep. And actually the, um, I was expecting going into this because it was, you know, doing a fastest known time. And my experience with fastest known times is you just, you, you don't sleep. You might take a couple of dirt naps, you just push. And, you know, going into that first night after trying to navigate some of that 
terrain in the dark. It was like, yeah, I, I want to sleep. I want to lay down. I, the navigating this <laughs> in the dark is way too difficult. Um, and it's kind of funny because I remember, you know, we set our alarms for what, for three, three hours after we laid down and we both woke up to our alarms, sat up and like, talked to each other didn't hear each other and just laid back down and like reset our alarms for an hour later <laughs> and then we got up well we quote unquote got up an hour later we sat up in our sleeping bags talked to each other actually heard each other and decided to stay in the sleeping bags for like another two hours <laughs> yeah you know, watching shooting stars and just tag it out and resting and you know letting the darkness pass because the reality was that i think we both knew at this point that we were going to be out there for a long, 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 long period of time. And, you know, so to me, spending additional time in the sleeping bag did not feel like a waste, particularly given that the route finding was so brutal in the dark. I mean, what you have to imagine out there is that you're end running these massive side canyons in the Grand Canyon, like halfway down, you know, between the rim and the bottom. And as you're trying to get around the ends of these side canyons and arroyos, there is typically only a select level or two where you can actually go and complete the end run. So you need to be exactly on the right level of ledges and whatnot in order to get through. But where exactly the ledges connect changes from end run to end run. So you really can't tell um, where you have to be without having the benefit of having daylight and being able to kind of study the larger landscape and getting an idea where there is a least path of resistance, you know, like a quarter mile or a half mile out from you. And without that, you're essentially just traipsing around blind trying to solve this maze that, you know, you have no idea if the route that you're currently following is actually going to connect or not. Yeah. And that was, that was one of the, the realizations that we had out there was, you know, on the map, it looked flat. And, and I remember asking you, like, do you know, you know, it looks pretty flat on the map. Are we going to be scrambling? Like what's, you know, what is this terrain really going to be oh, like? No scrambling. No scrambling. Yeah. Sunny says no scrambling. Um, it should be pretty flat. And the, it's interesting because on the map, it does look really flat and it looks like you're kind of on this one level of the Grand Canyon, but there's so many changes between, you know, different, uh, there's like different steps within that level, um, on the Esplanade level and, and running those canyons. I think you found a quote from somebody who wrote a, some kind of a trip report that said, you know, navigating the Esplanade is like being stuck in a fractal. And so mm-hmm. it's just end runs upon end runs and, you know, you're end running little canyons that are attached to bigger canyons, attached to bigger canyons. And it just seems to go on forever. <laughs> you know, I feel like, the point where that really hit me hard and where I got the most frustrated potentially was as we approached Tuck Up Canyon, which is kind of the, you know, the big side canyon that marks the middle of the route. And so big side canyon to me now means this is a major sidearm off the actual Colorado River, right? It's a direct tributary into the Colorado and it pretty much um, dissects the Tuck Up route. Well, we came up to, this would have been the northeast corner of the tuck up colorado confluence and all we needed to do is get to the northwest corner right across tuck up canyon was like you know as a crow flies maybe what a mile and a half two miles and it took us over a day to get there because we had to end run the entire tuck up canyon system with all of its sidearms sidearms to sidearms sidearms to sidearms to sidearms right so it just took us forever to get from you know two spots that as a crow flies are super close but yeah just probably were 20 30 miles of hard difficult terrain um once you factored in all the end runs yeah yeah and that term as the crow flies that became kind of a hated you know because we would be and especially on on that that canyon specifically the tuck up canyon on one side of the canyon looking at the other side of the canyon there's this big feature out there called the dome and you know we can see it it's only a few miles away and you know we just kept going as the crow flies it's only three and a half miles away and then you know we travel fifth you know 10 miles and as the crow flies it's only three miles away (laughs) it was it's just kind of it can be sort of maddening if you really dwell on it but 
I don't know. I kind of feel like and running the canyons became part. Of, I mean, it's part of the beauty of of that route, right? It's you know each each end run was its own little adventure, um, and we we definitely had some interesting experiences on some of those end runs. Yes, we did. Yeah, just really really interesting terrain and lots of cactus lots of cactus i have scars on my legs <laughs> from the cactus and the century plants out there um just really brutal brutal terrain um and it was kind of you know that realization of the the end running the canyons that kind of made us go okay let's let's sleep at night and i'm actually really glad we did because i've you know like i said earlier on fkts i generally just push through. I don't stop and rest for very long, maybe an hour or two, take a quick nap, keep moving. And the sleeping on this was great because I actually woke up feeling refreshed each yeah. after each night. And um, I remember, you know, going to setting up our little bivvies and going to bed and like my feet ache and, and my legs ache and I feel so sore and man, tomorrow morning is going to be really, really hard to get moving again. And I'd wake up and feet feel great. Legs feel great. Ready to go. Um, I think neither you nor I took a lot of ibuprofen until what the last 24 hours, you know, because by the time we kind of reached that critical level of just pain everywhere, we'd go to sleep and then be fine the next morning. So yeah, I think sleep makes a huge difference because the reality is, you know, as you're not sleeping, your brain's not working, your brain isn't controlling um, your body or your efforts anymore, not efficiently anyway. And, you know, so if you're not sleeping, you're just stumbling and fumbling around pretty aimlessly and inefficiently. Whereas if you do sleep and spend, you know, maybe not four or five, six hours like we did, even though it was great, but if you spend at least two, three, four hours and get some good sleep, you're then that much more efficient, you know, afterwards, and you can make up that lost time again. I experienced that um, in Alaska on the Iditarod, where I slept between six and I think nine hours every single night. And I finished within, you know, hours over the course of a 10 day race with the folks who hadn't been sleeping, who'd been trying to push through, who are trying to like, you know, go for the records and go for the win and, you know, do this and that. And yeah, we ended up making the same time. Yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing. And it, it I think it'll sort of rewrite my kind of how I see sleep on these big efforts. Cause I think, you know, the, the pushing through the sleep deprivation has its time and place, yeah. but you know, there's certain things, especially when you need to be like mentally really focused um, and be able to make decisions like on the tuck up um, where, you know, having that sleep and, you know, resting your mind and your body is, is so important because I mean, the, the navigation on that route was nuts. And you were a rock star with the navigation. Like I, <laughs> I was like, I was really amazed by how you were able to move so quickly and efficiently while looking at your GPS at the same time and, and navigating. And I was just like, I can't, you know, in some ways I actually hated that because <laughs> the reality is that the only thing that allowed us to make any type of progress, particularly in the dark was having a decent GPX track. Right. And I was literally glued to the screen of my phone for hours at a time in the dark, like trying to figure out, you know, between the beam of the headlight and trying to figure out where it was okay footing. And then the GPS track that I'm just staring at continuously, essentially navigating like a blind person. Um, I typically do these things because I want to get away from the screen <laughs> and with navigation like that, it was like, oh, you know, I, I have to have my phone out the whole time and I'm glued to the screen the whole time because that's the only way that we can get through here. But that too was one of the reasons that I was really keen on sleeping because that allowed me to get off the phone. And then of course in daylight, it was much easier to go and navigate with dead reckoning and then just, you know, good um, strategy and reading the terrain kind of saying, okay, we want to get over there. What looks like the path of least resistance, check the GPS track, make sure that we're directionally right. And then just, you know, go and figure it out yourself. But in the night on the tuck up, you just can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was pretty rough. And I, I learned quickly that, I had to move quickly in order to keep up with you and your long <laughs> legs. I was like, head down, just go, <laughs> just follow. Kind of thinking back on the tuck, actually, um, let's talk about 
what we ended up calling the Tuck Up Trail. We, we came up with a little nickname for the Tuck Up Trail. <laughs> we called it the Magic Trail. <laughs> and we called it the Magic Trail because we kept waiting for the Magic Trail to appear. It was like this promise of magic. And it finally did appear. And it was amazing. It was completely magical. And then we started calling it the Magic Trail because it also had this really really impressive disappearing act that would put any serious magician to shame and it just kept you know popping up and disappearing popping up and disappearing and so yeah the magic trail was a hate love relationship yes yes it was it was uh gosh when that trail showed up when we actually did find well-traveled well well well-traveled it looked like well-traveled trail it was obvious trail it was like mind blowing. We were just so excited. And it's like, oh my gosh, you can turn off your brain for a little bit and sort of just follow this trail. Um, and it was magic. It was heaven. <laughs> and then, yeah, it would just inevitably always, always disappear. And not long after we found it too. <laughs> it's always kind of like, how did this, how did, how did the trail look so good? And then now it's just gone. Like, how did yeah. it just disappear? It's like magic. Well, what would you what would you do differently if you were to go back and do it? And do you want to go back and do it? So I do think I want to go back and do it again. I don't know. Do you? We we talked about this because we were, you know, maybe halfway through when we were having our, our big talk, like, how are we feeling? Do we really want to keep going? Um, I was like, I don't want to come back to repeat this. I didn't, at that point I was like, if we don't finish this now, I'm not coming back. But now that, you know, that wonderful ultra distance (laughs) athlete amnesia has kicked in. Um, yeah, I would, I would go back. It was beautiful. It was a phenomenal route (laughs) and like just so unique and such a, a cool part of the Grand Canyon that people don't often see. Um, and I think that, yeah, for me, I would, I would go back. I think it's, I, I think that there's a lot that we could improve on and it could definitely be, um, done a little bit more streamlined now that we know it. I agree. Yeah. I would go back as well. I think it was really cool and really beautiful. And there's still a lot of optimization to be done. (laughs) Plus there's a lot more that I want to explore out there. So I'd actually first and foremost like to go back and do it slowly and explore a ton of those side canyons that we just, you know, jumped through. But for another FKT attempt and to improve the time, the things that I would do different are, I think, relatively straightforward. Um, I would do it at a different time of the year. I think that doing it in the fall actually was not ideal because it was still too hot. The days were too short and there wasn't enough water. So I think likely a better time would be early spring I'm thinking you know late February early March where the days are already longer and um, hopefully there would have been some uh, moisture and some precipitation from the winter so that's something to you know to keep a close eye on you can never just rely on that you have to actually follow the weather really closely in the area right when you want to go and do that Um, the challenge then also becomes that if there has been moisture it can be a lot harder to get to the trailheads, but you know, the trailhead access is reasonably low. It's five or 6,000 feet. So it should be fine even in the snow. Um, so yeah, I would do it at a different time of the year. I would definitely not start on the Eastern end at five in the afternoon, like we did. <laughs> I would start at five in the morning and, you know, head down the initial hill that actually has trail in the dark and then max out a full day um, of just daytime and daylight navigation on the Esplanade level and try to get through as much of the hard non-trail terrain as possible on that first, you know, first couple hour segment of daylight. Um, because for you and I, the main reason that we ended up going to sleep just a couple hours after we started is because we just threw our hands up and we realized how impossible it was to navigate in the dark. So I would do that. Um, I would probably take an additional liter or two of water just to be on the safe side. So you and I each carried four liters of water and we really never needed that entire water capacity. I think the lowest we ever got down to was maybe about a liter or a liter and a half that you and I each still had left. So we didn't know that ahead of time, right? So the four liters was appropriate for what we did. I think I felt pretty good about that, but it would also be possible to do the tuck up with less reliance on pothole water if you carried six liters, I think. 
in between springs. Um, so there's that. And then what else would I do different? Oh, I would take a solar panel or about three times the amount of um, charging capacity because one of the limiting factors that we ran into was high beam headlamp use. That was actually one of the things that I was the most stressed about in the last um, you know, night and a half because the only way to navigate in the dark there was with the high beam on on the headlamp. I went through batteries like crazy and I had no way to go and harvest you know, solar power. I only had a little battery pack and you had your battery pack and we maxed both of those out. And so that was, that was a limiting factor. I think all of that, that's like great points. I don't know that I would do much different from what you just described. Oh, one other point, um, long pants, hiking pants rather oh than tights. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Long pants. Um, I think we were both wearing, you know, the seven eighths length or whatever, three quarter length, the, the tights that kind of go halfway down your, yeah. your shin. And by the end of it, my, that little bit of skin that was exposed at the bottom was so well, one, it was sunburned like crazy. Um, I have these wonderful like reverse sock tan lines <laughs> on my legs. It's beautiful. And just completely, the skin was just completely torn up and destroyed um, between the cactus and the sagebrush and, you know, the sun, the century plants, those things, man. Yeah. I, I, you quickly learn, you know, there's certain kinds of cactus that leave spines behind in your feet or in your legs. There's some that just stab you and, and leave you, but you know, it burns for hours. And then there's century plants that stab and leave bruises <laughs> from, oh my gosh, just really, really not nice vegetation. So yeah, definitely the clothing. Um, I think the sun, sun hoodie was appropriate. That worked out really well for me. Um, I think you had one on too, but yeah, long pants for sure. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And I would actually probably, because I wore a pair of running shoes that had laces, like the, you know, regular laces that you tie in a bow. Um, Those laces kept getting caught on vegetation and pulling and, um, untying and it was driving me crazy. So I would go with some kind of shoe or, you know, replace laces with a speed lace so that it doesn't untie or put a gator on top or put a gator on top. Oh yeah. Yeah. Gator would, gator would have been helpful. So we talked about our time estimates earlier, 24, 48, 36 hours, you know, whatever. What, (laughs) what was our actual time? (laughs) 69 hours and 21 minutes. Then she came out to, two days, 21 hours, 21 minutes. So it felt like four days because chronologically speaking, we started on a Monday evening and we slept three times, right? We slept Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night and finished Thursday before the 24 hour mark of when we had started on Monday. So that made it, you know, the two days and change, but it really felt like we were out there for four days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, which was pretty intense. It is a little bit of a, a trip thinking about it because it's like, you know, it did feel like we were out there for a lot longer than we actually were because we were out there for three nights. You know, we could have probably been out there for two nights had we started at 5 a.m. Exactly. um, Which is another good reason to start early. But, you know, we did our, we did our best out there. (laughs) What was your favorite moment on the trail? That's a really good question. I would say... Probably finding a nice bivy spot night two and getting into the sleeping bag. <laughs> yeah, that was I, a good. Uh, that was a good moment. Yeah, I always I liked all the bivies. I slept really well uh, most nights. I was gonna say the first night, you know, when we both decided to just stay in the bag and watch shooting stars, but realistically, that was too early on, and there were still too many unknowns for that to have been my high point. Um, yeah, probably second night bivy. And then, you know, I mean, there were some really, really, really beautiful spots in between. And it was just the whole thing was a wild adventure and it was really cool and really amazing. But in terms of, you know, one like individual moment that sticks in my mind, it would probably be, yeah, getting ready for that second bivy. And, um, you know, one of the one of the kind of low light um, sunrise or sunset moments as we were traversing the tuck up. Um, yeah, those were really nice. 
yeah, the, the sunrises and sunsets in the Grand Canyon are like nothing else I've ever experienced. Just they're always beautiful, always, you know, the colors and the golden colors. And, and yeah, that was, I think the, the sunrises, the sunsets and the stars were definitely moments and things that stick out to me. I luckily have forgotten about most of the pain. So most of my (laughs) memories are pretty good ones (laughs) out there. Why do you think doing stuff like this is worth it? To me, it's never about the physical performance. You know, it's always about the adventure and specifically the adventure of discovering a new place, but also discovering something about myself and the people that I'm with. So I crave uncertainty and I crave growth and just kind of finding out what's around the next bend, be that in a landscape or in a person. And um, that's the reason that I do this stuff. You know, it's because it allows me to access elements of my mind that I don't typically have access to on a day-to-day level. And um, yeah, that's the reason that you know, I keep coming back even when it hurts. Yes to all of that. And I also think these things have the potential of redefining how you sort of see the world. And with the tuck up for me, it was sort of this redefining of how I see water and how precious water really is. Because I, I had just come off of a summer spent in the North Cascades where water is abundant And, you know, it's around every corner. It's called the Cascades because there's just cascades of waterfalls everywhere. And immersing myself in a desert environment where water is so scarce and so precious. And I remember seeing that one pothole where there were animal footprints kind of surrounding it and going, we're not the only ones here who rely, who are relying on this. And, you know, that realization that, that there's so many little creatures out there and, you know, we're, we're all kind of in the same boat trying to survive. Um, that was, that was pretty, that kind of redefined some things for me. Yeah, absolutely. What kind of, uh, adventures do you have coming up? (laughs) Well, my adventures for the next couple of weeks and months are reasonably mellow. Um, I'm going to Turkey for some rock climbing in December And then um, I'm going to Aconcagua in Argentina with you, Ashley, for our exhibition. (laughs) And then after that, in late February, early March, I'm going back to Alaska to compete in the Iditarod uh, Trail Invitational 350-mile race one more time. So I'm really looking forward to that. But um, yeah, you know, just kind of the usual. So The usual, usual big adventures. (laughs) No big deal. Just Aconcagua. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be fun. It will be fun. I'm very excited. I'm I'm excited to be a, a part of that Aconcagua team. All right. Well, thank you, Sunny, for taking time out of your morning to chat with me. I really appreciate it. And I'm, you know, I, I loved the tuck up trail so much that I was just like, gosh, we have to, we have to share this. And what a great way for me to kick off kind of this new season of the Women of the Wild podcast and and be able to to share that adventure with everybody. And hopefully it inspires some women There's some everybody, anybody, women, people, men, whoever to get out there and, and explore a bit. I love it. I can't wait to uh, hear all of your other guests this season and uh, to go and have lots and lots more adventures with you. I'm very excited. That concludes this episode of the women of the wild podcast. Thank you so much for stopping on by. I'm excited to have everybody here. I'm excited to be back. Um, Just stoke, stoke, stoke all over. Don't forget to check out Gnarly Nutrition and uh, get out there, get wild, have fun, be curious, and we'll catch you next time.